Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. On today's show, we welcome a special guest, Delphia's Andrew Peake. Delphia runs an algorithmic investing strategy powered by machine learning. On the show, Andrew discusses predicting fundamental data using artificial intelligence to drive investment alpha, which fundamentals their algorithm trades on, how humans can incorporate machine learning into their investment process, what he finds most compelling about capital markets, and more. So with no further ado, here's our show on algorithmic investing with Delphia's Andrew Peake. All right, kicking off the podcast with Delphia's Andrew Peake. Andrew calling in from New York today. How are things? I hear you have a new office out there. Yeah, we do. It's um, We share it with a group called Fiverr. I think they're a public company, if I'm not mistaken. It's, uh, it's a fun group. I don't know if you know the company, but pretty much uh, anything you could pay $5 for, they facilitate. Yeah, fun fact. I get the uh, podcast process through Fiverr. <laughs> so well aware of the company. I use, I use it on a weekly basis and uh, certainly recommend it if you have any uh, requirements or if you run a podcast. But I digress. Um, let's kick things off getting into your background in startups. I read uh, just on your profile, you previously built and sold a company to Shopify. Can you walk us through that experience? Yeah, for sure. We, um, we made a pretty simple bet out of the gate. Uh, this was 2010, 2009, 2010. And if you recall back then, um, most of the software development project cost was spent on the development side, not the design side. And yet we were seeing a proliferation of apps. And so we made a simple bet that said the balance of the equation would change and that 50 cents on every development dollar would end up being spent on design. So we, we built a software design company. That bet ended up playing out nicely. We were, we were sort of the number two software design company in the country spun out a piece of collaboration software. It was a bit of a poor man's Slack before Slack was around. And both those companies sold to Shopify in 2013 when there was a race to arms for design talent. And then after that, you made a leap into big data, which is, you know, you see just a ton of applications utilizing big data for machine learning, artificial intelligence, and so on and so on. Can you talk to us about, you know, the appeal of big data and how it can be utilized to make predictions and many different things, whether it's sports or politics or even investing yeah for sure the the big benefit of selling to shopify and sort of riding that roller coaster through ipo was you kind of get to sit back and say okay well i have enough energy left in the tank to do another you know big swing and i've created enough of a cushion here to to make it you know a moonshot to really go after something esoteric or, or hard to pull off and so I, I really went on, I went on a three-year hunt looking for very interesting projects out in the wild. And I came across a research lab that had spun out of the University of Toronto, I believe in 2010 or 2011. And I met this lab in 2014. Uh, they had built a survey-based tool that helped calculate your alignment to the different candidates that were running in an election. And this was a 50-question tool. Um, but people loved it. People would spend 10 minutes on this thing and they'd answer very reliably because they ultimately wanted an accurate output. They really wanted this insight. 
uh, into their alignment to the different issues and candidates and all of that. Uh, and then they would tweet or share their result on social media. So now you had this really rich profile that you could connect to this time series of behavior. And this lab, it turns out, became exceptional at forecasting the election outcome, the entire distribution. And they were outperforming every major polling agency in every country they operated. And I took a fascination to this and the, the lab's founder, Cliff Vanderlinden, and he had a really simple way of expressing it. He was trying to help people use their own data to their own benefit uh, and thought this, this was a really great application of that. Uh, and what, what this lab taught me was that what I had previously assumed was you, you couldn't you couldn't catch up in the data race. The you know, big tech platforms had run away with it. They had too much surface area. They were collecting too much behavioral data. But what his sort of little Petri dish proved to me was when you have this self-declared profile data that can run many attributes deep on the individual, and you can join that to behavioral data, uh, there is a, a a different alt- there is a different level of forecasting that can be done. And so I, I, I sort of loved that insight. I didn't have much of an affinity for the election space, didn't think it was a very good business model, but I was um, I sort of fell in love with the, the, the founder and, and the lab itself and that insight. And I immediately went looking for a context, a bigger context where it could be applied. This podcast is brought to you by Accelerate, one of Canada's leading alternative investment solution providers. Do you want to hedge your investment portfolio and protect your nest egg from significant drawdowns? Look no further than the Accelerate Absolute Return Hedge Fund, a long-short equity ETF that trades under the ticker symbol HEDGE, H-D-G-E, on the TSX. HEDGE, your uncorrelated portfolio diversifier. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. And what bigger context uh, compared to politics than financial markets? I mean, we're talking about trillions and trillions of value traded. And there's this notion that AI and machine learning can more accurately forecast or predict you know, future capital markets movements, whether it's stock prices, commodities, interest rates, FX, currencies, etc., Obviously, humans have been trying to do that for basically hundreds of years, if not longer. What makes you believe that AI and machine learning and these big data sets, how can that more accurately predict these future events, future prices in capital markets compared to humans? Yeah, that's a good question. I still, I don't know that you could just say it's one or the other. So, in fact, there's a a graveyard of tech companies that have assumed you can throw uh, tens of thousands of data scientists around the world at a problem and somehow beat the market. Right. Right. I don't. I don't, I don't need to name names. But I'm sure we're all familiar with sort of a couple of these efforts. Um, but you're you're not excused from having, let's just say, a framework, an investment framework in this case that hangs together uh, and makes sense and is unique. Uh, I think that is still very much part of the equation. But. There is merit to say that this toolkit that you're alluding to, machine learning and AI, it is extremely suitable for at least part of the problem. Hmm. Uh, it, it, it is going to surface nonlinear relationships far better than you and I will be able to uh, and can ingest copious amounts of data. The, the key is where and when is it responsible to go looking for these nonlinear relationships? What's sort of the foundation that lives beneath that? that makes that something you can hang your hat on. And just a little bit of an aside, but the history of quantitative investing, which is to say the history of using machine learning to predict stocks, generally was just about 
pointing a model at predicting price mm -hmm. because you had an observation of a stock's price every day. So you had all this training data that is sort of a prerequisite for training a model. But when you put it into the wild, as it happens, many things move a stock's price that the machine will never have seen before. Right. Right. And so it's it's just not so simple as like, I've got this, you know, this grenade launcher. I'm going to point it at this target and hope for the best. You, you have to be a little more astute than that. Now, my partner, Jonathan, our CIO, he was the managing director of the Quant Equity Group at CPPIB, Canada Pension Plan. And his big insight was if you took that ML toolkit and you pointed it at fundamentals, you were in far better shape because the degrees of freedom around predicting a fundamental were about an order of magnitude less, which is to say a machine has an order of magnitude less chances of overfitting itself. And so that that just kind of goes to show that even one basic insight that can get you huge gains. And now having said all of that, uh, and even if you talk to Jonathan or anybody else who's gone deep on AI, eventually it's not about the toolkit. It is eventually about what you feed into it. And so even with a responsible framework, you know, the bet for us is really on on data. Right. But your point being that ultimately AI and machine learning are a toolkit that an investor can yeah. utilize within their process. It doesn't do it for them, but it can help augment uh, their process and ultimately, hopefully, improve their results. Now, you took this technology, you're building a company around it. Uh, how does Delphia work? And ultimately, what's the mission that you're working towards? Yeah, so we, we borrow the mission, if you will. It's inspired by Cliff in the original research lab, which is to say, uh, you know, we, we believe that data is going to unlock financial prosperity. And so we're, we're trying to inspire people to invest their data with us. So you can think of us like an asset manager that manages both data and dollars. And we use the former to improve the latter, the returns on the latter. Now, the yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. The Yes, yeah, so the, the business model we've wrapped around this is, is an interesting one. Um, as I mentioned, Jonathan developed this sort of breakthrough in forecasting. So you could kind of call this a modeling advantage. We think we have a modeling advantage today. Now, any modeling advantage in, in the history of you know active trading generally gets decayed away. Eventually, the, the field catches up to what you're doing. People start modeling the world in the same way. And so we're very explicit with, you know, we think we've got a five, six, seven year horizon or decay rate, depending on how you want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And in that time, by the time we get closer to the end of that, it's going to put the focus on our relative forecasting advantage. And so therefore, we want to ensure that we've got access to proprietary data that others don't. So then the question becomes, how do we construct a business model that will bring about proprietary evergreen data. We want this to, to be continuous. And we made a really interesting decision. It's controversial for sure. The alpha that comes off of our stock selection, it's one, one machine learning stack, one set of alphas, but we partition the alpha. We do two different portfolio constructions. Uh, one for your accredited folks. This is a long, short implementation. Master Peter came in domiciled hedge fund, you know, two and 20, all of that. Uh, the other is we take we take some of that alpha, um, sort of 500 names, and we put it on top of the S&P 500, and we give it away to retail investors for free. And we say, contribute your data through our mobile applications to improve the strategy. So they're getting alpha on top of beta. They're getting it for free. It's a little bit of a premium on the S&P. And we're asking them to contribute data to improve the stock selection 
And as it happens, that stock selection improves everybody's alpha. That's the theory. And, uh, and the fees paid on one side are redistributed to those contributing data on the other. Okay, I just wanted to get more into details on how the investment algorithm works and, and how the investment strategies are structured. So you have um, two strategies. One, long, short, I assume market neutral. Is this North American equities only? And then you have the S&P plus uh, long, short equity overlay. Like, uh, What are the exposures? Are you trying to eliminate the beta? Is it like dollar uh, market neutral? Uh, how is the strategy set up and what sort of returns are you targeting? Yeah, so let's start with the long short. Um, fortunately, I've got some very recent performance characteristics in front of me, so I can reference them. But yeah, it's intended to be dollar and beta neutral. Okay. Uh, so I, th- I think on an annualized basis, we've got about eight basis points of, of beta in there. Uh, we hedge out our exposure to well-known factors like value, quality, momentum. If I recall correctly, those exposures are somewhere around 12 basis points per in that in that territory. And, you know, we, we launched this April 1st of 21. So that's 17 months of track record to date. And looks like we are sitting at about just north of 80% gross returns in that time and 65% net if you take the average fee. So that, that works out to about a 3.2 sharp. And that's the that's the long short fund. Um, now the the long only implementation is a very new implementation. I just mentioned the one I mentioned for retail. Uh, that's actually just rolling out the door. I think in real time as I speak. Previously, we put the alpha on top of a sector bet, a consumer staples, consumer discretionary sector. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. So I want to understand the investment process better. Uh, You just discussed kind of two different ways you can apply uh, machine learning to stock selection. I mean, first, you you can just utilize historical prices as your input and try to predict off that. Or you also mentioned utilizing historical fundamentals, predicting fundamentals mm-hmm. and using those to uh, make asset allocation decisions, pick mm-hmm. stocks, etc. So ultimately, how does your algorithm work? Is it a mix of both? Or are you more focused on predicting the fundamentals, which then drive stock selection? Yeah, we're predicting uh, fundamentals. In fact, specifically, we're predicting fundamental surprise. Okay. And so you can you can roll fundamentals up to sort of into three buckets. You've got your sales surprise, your EBIT margin surprise, and your net income surprise. And each of those top line fundamentals can be unpacked into a set of KPIs. And generally a discretionary investor is in the business of trying to predict what the KPIs will be, and that informs their expectation of the fundamentals and therefore their discounted cash flows. 
Um, and so they have their own objective function with which they're looking at the market. And then you've got quants, and quants really aren't in the business of prognosticating. They're more in the business of reacting to information. So it's it's more about, okay, well, we've got ground truth that's been established vis-a-vis an earnings report. How does a quant expect the field of fundamental investors to react in light of that new information? And can they update their positions prior to uh, any manual adjustments to models thereafter? And so we're trying to we're trying to arbitrage that dynamic. We're trying to use a quantitative toolkit to do actual prognostication in advance of ground truth on these fundamentals. And so we're sort of taking positions and harvesting as they converge towards uh, the reveal of the surprise, if we're correct. And so just to kind of illustrate how different this this looks from a quant perspective, you know, post-quant winter, most hedge funds like Two Sigma and the like, their, their average hold time for a position just really collapsed down to, to days. I think it's about seven days at Two Sigma. Uh, Delphia, conversely, we hold a position for four months on average. Okay. Which which is an an obvious demonstration that we're we're trying to leapfrog over the short horizon where markets behave like a voting machine. Yep. And we're trying to place bets in sort of this mid horizon where they behave more like a weighing machine. So we're using ML to predict these fundamentals. And then a much simpler technique, we're using linear regression to map that back to returns. And we're doing so at different horizons, seven different horizons, which is seven quarters into the future. In terms of predicting fundamental surprise, just so I have this um, accurate, the algorithm makes its fundamental prediction, and then your fund puts on a position either long or short if that fundamental prediction utilizing ML is, say, quite a bit different than the consensus. Would that be a correct interpretation? That's where machine learning becomes helpful is its job is to go look for nonlinear relationships in the data. But rather than hang our hat on any one nonlinear relationship, we're looking for sort of a consensus to emerge or agreement to emerge amongst many nonlinear relationships vis-a-vis the model. Right. So the model is looking for these nonlinear relationships, but the target is fundamentals, which are a variable far more stable than price, but still co-integrated with price. Yeah, with the thought that over time, fundamentals will drive uh, the share price over, over the holding period. Now, are there any market environments in which the al- algorithm works better than expected? And conversely, are there adverse market environments where it's like, you know, these predictions just aren't working or the predictions are working, but the stock price reactions aren't what we think? Yeah, there, there definitely are. So there are moments in history where fundamentals matter more to the equation and moments in time where fundamentals just get tossed out the window. And in those particular moments, in the latter moments, you really have to believe that sanity prevails in the long run. Now, again, I'm not talking about the now casting environment. In the now casting, it's extremely noisy. Prices are moving around on account of all kinds of information that have nothing to do with fundamentals. I'm I'm really talking about, you know, beyond that now casting moment, can we rely on fundamentals? And I'll, I, you might be surprised by the moments where fundamentals kind of went out the window. You know, the, the model weathered the, the great financial collapse pretty well, all things considered. And, and even March 2020, we were only down a point uh, in the back test at least. Uh, the, the greatest dip in the back test occurred 
when the vaccine news came out, mm. when we finally had a vaccine. And it was in that moment that all of a sudden fundamentals got deprioritized writ large across the market. Yeah, that was real tough uh, so for quant investors. We run uh, a few long short quant strategies. And I remember that day specifically because it was one of the most painful. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That was fortunately we weren't live yet, but nevertheless, that was in the back test, that was our that was our big hit. And you know, we've seen days like this too since we've been live. It's and so you just have to re, you have to be you have to rely on the fact that again, sanity prevails, fundamentals do matter, economic outcomes do matter. You could think of it like the strategy makes money by stack ranking companies correctly in a peer set. And that whole peer set can move up and down with whatever macro events or market conditions are going on. Really, what we want to do is we want to get the order correct and the delta between them correct. And there's just more payout for the top of the order than there is for the bottom. So if you get number seven and eight backwards, not the end of the world, you get number one and two backwards, you're probably not making So a, cu- a couple of things here, because this is all very interesting. I guess first, is is there any capacity constraints that you have for the long short strategy specifically? Uh, any sort of size that it that it would no longer work, or there that de- there would be too much decay? And then as well, on on for sector specific, do you look into sector specific KPIs? So say the the KPIs would be very different. We're we're based in Calgary for an energy company, an EMP energy company based on production versus a consumer company uh, that, that's in maybe consumer packaged goods. How, how do those KPIs and, and your model differ for those? Great, great question. So the first one, very simply, yes, there are capacity constraints and long short space for us. Uh, it is higher capacity than most. So if we're just working with a universe of U.S. equities, uh, our expectation is around 1 to 1.2 billion. Uh, however, we do know this works in global equity space, Europe, Japan, Australia, Asia X. So we, by adding equities to the pool, we think we can max it out around 2.5. To your second question, this is a really interesting one. So we do have a nested modeled approach where we've got you know company-specific models inside of industry-level models inside of a global model. But it's a really, what you're pointing to is actually a really hard problem. So especially when you think about point in time. So KPIs, let's just use Netflix, for example, right? Netflix sales is going to have a longer uh, reporting period than any given Netflix KPI that rolls up to it. So you can think of KPIs as having a, uh, a half-life that's different than a fundamental in many ways. So what that means is that at any given moment in time, when you're trying to do an assessment of what these KPIs were and, and a compression exercise to feed that signal into your sales estimate, right? You've got to, you, you can't just, uh, it's not the same approach kind of one year to the next or five years to the next. And that, that exercise is something we're actually spending a lot of time on right now doing by hand um, because there's, we believe there's a whole other tier we can get to um, if we can marry sort of depth of understanding on a per name basis with, a cross-section of 3,000 names, right? So we, we benefit a lot from the cross-section right now. And if we can if we can behave even more like a fundamental investor, that's another way to say it, then we can optimize our bets accordingly. And now, how much does the algorithm utilize the platform's user data? Because obviously, you mentioned someone like, you know, a company like Netflix, obviously highly reliant on consumer behavior, but there's 
various B2B business models or commodity producers or things of that nature where perhaps uh, consumer attitudes or use would have a much smaller effect. So does the platform user data augment other fundamental data that you utilize or is it you know, some sort of balance or split between them? So right now it doesn't augment anything. The panel's too small. Uh, we only started collecting panel in earnest you know, less than we're less than a year in in that front. Um, so really, the investment in sort of the proprietary data is an investment in our future. Oh, uh, okay. However, yeah, so we're not we don't derive alpha from it today. However, we collect it in a manner uh, from which we expect to do uh, model training and research. Okay, so that will be something that perhaps improves the algorithm at a later date. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. Now, from a personal perspective. The, the capital markets can be fun and frustrating and you know, generate a whole host of emotions. Now, uh, for you, what do you find most compelling about the financial markets? And conversely, what do you find most frustrating? Feedback loop's incredibly addictive. So it's, it's just a fun space because everyone's, everyone's walking around with a theory, a hypothesis, you know, high conviction in a lot of cases. And... Uh, and yet the, the feedback loop cannot be argued with. It's right there in front of you. And so it's, it's humbling. It's fun. And you really have to be prepared to update your priors regularly. You can't have a lot of hubris is, is what I've quickly realized. And not that I, I feel like I did coming in, but I, I'm enjoying, uh, I'm enjoying the, uh, the rate of change, let's just say. But I think for me, that is still there's still sort of one level higher that I appreciate, which is, you know, predicting or modeling the world. is just such an addictive activity, mm-hmm. right? Trying to, trying to guess the future and, and being a, in a relatively better position than the next person is just so, I don't know, as a game, it just uh, gives me a lot of pleasure. And so I'm, I'm very much enjoying the, the, the predictive side of the equation and, and the feedback loop supporting that. Then moving moving away from investing in in capital markets a little bit, now you're you're a repeat founder. Two very different industries that you've been involved in. Do you have any advice for for future founders or entrepreneurs in in your path? I I think generally going eyes wide open into whatever the nature of business you're trying to start. So I, you know, Delphia is not a small build. It's a large build. It was going to be. It was quite obvious to me this was going to be a venture-backed business, and you know, we'd go many rounds deep. And so that ends up looking like a very binary bet at the end of the day, right? It could it could be incredibly successful. It it may not pay itself back. And just making peace with your probable outcomes in advance of going down this path, I think is really important. If you're looking for something that's got a little bit more of a linear growth curve to it, or you're looking for something where, you know, it's more lifestyle oriented and you don't necessarily have to answer to VCs. uh, I think it's really good to get the criteria on the table on day one, because there's, in my experience, there's so many ideas. There's so many different business ideas you can pursue. And that's not, that's not the shortage. The, the, where we lack skill as, as entrepreneurs is uh, the matching exercise. Which of the ideas in my midst am I going to be intrigued by, want to work on, satisfy the conditions I'm doing this for? Um, I think people could stand to spend a lot more time in that sort of self-awareness phase and, and, and reflecting on what's a good match for them. 
Andrew, you approach it very mathematically and unemotionally, which is fitting for a quant investor because <laughs> you never want to get uh, emotional and, and override the models when it temporarily stops working. Uh, in any event, uh, prior to letting, go, letting you go here, one last fun question um, that I like hearing from CEOs and founders is what time do you wake up and what's your favorite productivity hack? Hey, I woke up at 5 a.m. today, which is pretty typical, 5, 5.30. An hour is not made equal. Again, this is a self-reflection exercise. So if you ask me to write a, a blog post, for example, uh, it would take me four hours if I started at 9 p.m. It'll take me 45 minutes if I start at 6 a.m. Hmm. And so you, you really can choose how to slot your work into your day in an extremely efficient way once you understand um, when you're prone to being in a creative space, when you're able to, to do sort of multitasking around monotonous things, you know, when you're best suited to take in information as in from a meeting. Uh, and I'm, I'm religious about how I structure my day so that, you know, all hours are not made equal. That's a really good point. Yeah, I find myself personally most productive and effective between five and eight in the morning, but after say eight at night, just a complete disaster <laughs> in terms of productivity. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. Uh, thanks for coming on the show today. A lot of interesting insights into Delphia, the platform, how it works. Uh, super uh, cool that you are rewarding users for providing data, which ultimately you hope leads to improvement in the algorithm at a future date. So making those investments for future alpha and uh, wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Appreciate you gentlemen having me on. All right. Take care. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.